I wonder this evening what you model your life upon, or perhaps who do you model your life upon? Perhaps you model your life upon good people, reformers, good Christian people that you, you know of, Christian greats, some of these great men who have served the Lord their entire lives, and some perhaps who have lost their lives because of their faith. I'll put another question to you. Are you, or do you think that you are a good model, a good role model for children, for grandchildren, children you know, or other people you know? Are you a good role model for perhaps friends, those who are around you, non-believers? Does it concern you at all what others may think of you? I think most of us would probably say yes. We don't really want to be thought of as bad people, as or boring people, really, do we? Does it concern you what people think of you, knowing that you're a believer, knowing that you're a Christian? Do you desire God to be glorified through your actions, through the way you speak and act toward your fellow believers, your fellow human beings? Do you desire the glorification of Christ? Well, with those questions in mind, uh, let's look at this part of this letter then which Paul is writing to the Philippians. Paul is writing uh, from prison and really the theme of this, this book is having or being joyful in the Lord and knowing peace and contentment but also being united with each other, united in Christ, being like Christ and how all of these things are only found in Christ himself. Now, of course, Paul needs to give them an example, and the perfect example, isn't it, is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the perfect example for everybody to follow. Hence, Paul here turns the, turns the, the readers of this letter to Christ. In the previous verses to this, so verses 1 to 4, Paul is encouraging the believers at Philippi not to be selfish, not to do what's right for themselves, not to, be, not to act selfishly, but to think of others first. In verse 3 it says, let each esteem other better than themselves. It says, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory. We are told and encouraged to do what we can for other people, even if it means sacrificing things for ourselves. Is that true of you? Is that true of me? This evening, how can we then be better examples? Well, the answer to that is not within ourselves, is it? The answer is in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it says in verse 5, it says, Let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus. Let your attitude towards each other let your attitude towards your brothers and sisters in Christ, towards other people who are not part of the family of God, let your attitude come from Christ. Really, verse 5, or so, I suppose, essentially, it wraps up the whole uh, message, really, the whole of uh, these five, six, or seven verses. Let this mind be in you. We are to be Christ-like in the way we conduct ourselves. And so let's remember that instruction as we go through this. Now, when it comes to examples 
I've already said that Jesus Christ is the ultimate, isn't he? He is the ultimate example for us all to follow. And here Paul is talking about humility and how we need the mind of Christ. So if we need the mind of Christ, let's think just for a little while what Christ actually did. I heard a story recently of a father and a son. They went for a walk out in the woods and uh, they came across a little ant's nest and the boy, being a typical boy, went and absolutely booted it. He put his foot right through it and destroyed it. And his father had a go at him and said, why are you you doing that? And his son felt very guilty. He felt a bit of remorse. And he said, well, can we we build it again for them? Can we help them? And, of course, there's no way they could build an ant's nest, is there? The only way, I suppose, the father would then say to him that the only way that they could do that was to be ants themselves. Obviously, that was never going to happen. But let's think of what God has done. He made this earth, didn't he? He created the world. In fact, if we turn to um, John chapter 1, and we read that in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. Verse 3, it says, all things were made by him. God created the world. And sin entered the world, didn't it, through the fall, through Adam. And so to, to rebuild, to sort the problem out, what did God do? He became a man. As uh, Charles Wesley puts it, he was contracted to a span. And in verse 14 of that chapter, chapter 1, it says, And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the, the only begotten of the Father full of, Father, full of grace and truth. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. That is what the Lord Jesus Christ has done. That is true humility, which Paul is trying to get across to the, to the, uh, to the readers here, to be humble, to be as Christ was. Humility, of course, is taking the lowest place, isn't it? Not worrying about your own status, not worrying what others may think of you, but taking the lowest place, even to the point that if you died because of your faith, it wouldn't matter. If you died for the gospel, then so be it. After all, the Lord Jesus Christ came to die, did he not? So from exaltation to humility. So the Lord Jesus Christ came from heaven to earth. Let's look at verse 6. And it says, Who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Now, in other words, it it says that he did not count equality with God something that he should grasp for. He didn't... Want it. He had a right to it. He had a right to be equal with God here on earth. And he was, of course, almighty God, but he did not uh, count equality with God something to be grasped. He, as far as men were concerned, he was another man like they were. But, of course, later on, we do see that he was glorified. And we will 
turn to the Gospel of John, not just yet, but we'll turn to the Gospel of John again a little bit later. So although Jesus Christ was and is God, and he could have claimed equality, that was his right, but for the purpose in which he came, to become like man, to live a perfect life, and then to die, to take the penalty for our sins, because of that purpose, he did not, take, he did not de- demand that the people bow down to him and worship him but worship God alone, even though he does deserve those things. He came to take the lowest place, didn't he? Even at his birth. He was born and he was laid in a manger, an animal feed, uh, an animal feeding trough. In the, f- the first part of verse 7, it says, but made himself of no reputation. Now, for you and me this evening, I think a good reputation is something that we all would like, isn't it? It's, whether it's in business or uh, whether it's just at being the person we are, you know, amongst friends and things like that, we want to be thought well of. We want a good reputation. But we are told here that Jesus, he made himself of no reputation. Now, if we look at the Greek, it means that he emptied himself. Not in a way that he emptied himself and became nothing, but he emptied himself into the form of another human being, of a human being. He became a nobody, a no one. Everything that he had a rightful claim to, which was equality with God, he laid aside to accomplish the etern- his plan, his father's plan, which was, as we see in verse 8, he humbled himself And he became obedient unto death, even the death of a cross. As I said earlier, you know, his incarnation, it was really a time of humbling for for him, wasn't it? It was, he came in the most humble of circumstances to a poor family with no real uh, place to call his home as he grew grew up and as he uh, entered into his three years of ministry. He... He tells us that he had nowhere to lay his head. He said that the animals of the, of the earth, the fox, foxes have holes. They had more than what he had. He had nowhere to call his home. But it says, going back to verse 7 in the second part of it, it says, but, he, but he made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant. Or a, a bond servant, it might say, in a different, different translation. Basically, he, he became like a slave, the lowest of the low. Now, when Jesus Christ was, was um, with his disciples, if we turn to, we don't have to turn to it, I'll just, I'll just read it, but in Mark chapter 10 and verse 45, he says, For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered to, but to but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. He came not to serve, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life for many, for people, for sinners like you and me. All he did, it was for other people. He healed, he forgave people's sins, he did so much for other people. 
And through doing those things, he glorified not himself, but his Father. He glorified God. And throughout the Gospels, we see lots of miracles, don't we? And especially in John, they're not referred to as miracles, they're referred to as signs. Signs that tell us and told the people really who he was. But those things all brought glory to his name, to his Father, sorry. In uh, Luke chapter 22, we read of a, a bit of an argument within the disciples. They are uh, at the, the Last Supper, and there's an, an argument as to who's the greatest. And Jesus then speaks to them and tells them, well, if you're sitting around a table like we are now, where's, where's the place for honour? Where's the place for dishonour? And the place for honour was those who sat at the table. The places of dishonour were those who were doing the serving. So Jesus was explaining to them what, the right, right, what their rightful attitude should be. And actually, if you turn with me now to John, chapter 13, which is part of the same, same uh, period. It's, it's all around the Last Supper. And these chapters here in John, from 13 through to 17, it's, it takes part over these these few hours of the Last Supper and leading up to the, uh, the prayer, his high priestly prayer uh, at the end of that uh, discourse. And in John chapter 13, he shows them really what he has come to do and what they should be like. In verse uh, 4 and 5 it says, He rise, riseth from supper and laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself. After that he poureth water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel wherewith he was girded. So he's actually doing something which was a job, really, for the, the lowest-ranking servant. This was something that which, which even servants of medium rank would not be doing this. This was a job reserved for those who just came in, those who were the absolutely, you know dragged from the gutter, really. This was a job for that person, for that slave. Yet Jesus laid aside his garments and was willing to do such a thing. Now let's look to verse 8 of that same chapter, and it says, and Peter tells him, look, you will not wash my feet. And Jesus answered, if I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. And then verse 12 to 14. So after he had washed their feet and had taken his garments and was set down again, he said unto them, Know ye what I have done to you? Do you know what I've done to you? Ye call me Master and Lord, and ye say, Well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, ye also ought to wash one another's feet. So Jesus here is obviously telling them what they need to be like, that they need to follow his example. But he was also showing them what he's actually done. He was sitting up at the table, a place of honour. He has got down to the place of dishonour and served them. Jesus Christ, Almighty God, came from heaven, the, place of, the highest place of honour, has come to earth, the lowest, a place of dishonour, and yet he has served people and he has come to save people from their sins. And there we read that he goes back 
to sit at the table. And the Lord Jesus Christ has risen again, hasn't he? He rose again and he's ascended into heaven to the right hand of God the Father. So that is very significant, that little passage there. And it's an example, isn't it, for us all to follow. I wonder this morning, is that mind, the mind of Christ, is, this evening, sorry, is that mind in you? Is the mind of Christ in you? Psalm 84 and verse 10 reads, For a day in thy courts is better than a thousand. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. Are you happy to take the lowest place? I'm sure that many of us, you know, we could go along with that, couldn't we? We could say, I, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness for a, well, for a season or however long. I heard recently about a, um, a man who, well, he recently died, and at his funeral it was revealed what he had actually done in his life. And he was just a, a little old man with a scruffy old beard, and people obviously were friends with him, but they didn't really know much about what he actually did. And it turned out that this man, he never shouted about anything that he did, he never told, told people, he never bragged about the things he did, but it turned out that he'd been involved in translating the Bible into different languages. He'd been into Eastern Europe. He, he knew Brother Andrew from Open Doors. He'd actually been in prison in Eastern Europe for the work that he was doing. He was involved with smuggling, smuggling Bibles, and yet people knew nothing about it. So this man who had this funeral with hardly any people there, he would have had a wonderful reception in heaven. But he had taken a lowest, the, the lowest place. He was a humble man. He sought no recognition for the things he had done. I wonder this evening, are we like that? We seek some sort of recognition, don't we? Deep down, we think it's nice to have some sort of recognition for the things we do. But ultimately, we should be willing to take the lowest place and almost just serve and not be noticed. To serve God and not be noticed. I mean, we, that should be our mind. Now, verse, verse 7 uh, that we just looked at, it had more of a, uh, a heavenly focus, uh, who Jesus really was and who he rightfully is. But if we look at verse 8 now, we'll see it's more of an earthly focus, what he's become and what he's come to do. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of a cross. It says he became, he was found in fashion or in the appearance as a man. He appeared just as you and me. There was nothing special about him. There's nothing that looks different about him. We, see, we read in Isaiah 53 uh, verse 2 that he, it says he has no form or comeliness that we should desire him. He appeared just like you and me on the surface. But obviously to some, 
like the disciples, they saw that there was actually there was something, something special. There was something different about this man. And we only have to read the Gospels to see those things which tell us, don't they, don't they that uh, he is almighty God and how he humbled himself. And he humbled himself when he took on flesh. We've already considered, haven't we, the incarnation, his nativity, how he was brought into this world in very lowly circumstances. He humbled himself further still when he served others, when he was willing to wash the feet of his friends. He humbled himself still when he was suffering in the garden of Gethsemane, when he was praying. In fact, in 2 Corinthians, Paul tells us, doesn't he, that he made him who knew no sin to become sin for us. So Jesus Christ, although he was perfect, he had our sin placed upon himself. He's humbled himself to that level, to take our sin upon himself. He humbled himself when he suffered at the hands of all those who falsely accused him at that false trial. And then, of course, he humbled himself further when he was crucified and when he died on that cross, when he actually submitted to death itself. And it says even the death of the cross, the death of a criminal. That's what crucifixion was. It was reserved for criminals and for non-Romans. It was the worst form of public execution. And I don't really want to go into too much detail about what it was like, but, you know, in the, well, I'll say recent history, but in the last few hundred years, I think people would, they would go and see an execution, wouldn't they? And some people would revel in it. But this is a type of execution which you would not enjoy at all, which no one could really revel in this kind of thing. It was truly horrendous. Isaiah 53 uh, verse 4 it says surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows yet we did esteem him stricken smitten of God and afflicted but he was wounded for our transgressions he was bruised for our, for our iniquities the chastisement of our peace was upon him and with his stripes we are healed all we like sheep have gone astray we have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us, of us all. He's taken our sin, your sin, upon himself and has been nailed to that cross at Calvary. So this suffering was truly, truly horrendous. And it's something that we really can't comprehend how he actually took our sin upon himself, something which was alien to him, something which was a... A terrible concept. In the Garden of um, Gethsemane, we read that he, 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 he prayed and he's, he was in agony. And he was, I believe that he was in agony not because he knew what was facing him in terms of physical death, but he knew what he was having to take upon himself, something which was completely alien to him, sin, something that he couldn't tolerate, something that he couldn't look upon, he took sin upon himself, and that was 
we, that was the thing that was so, so painful for him. And of course we read that he sweat great drops of blood. He suffered so much. Everything that he stood against, he became. I wonder this evening, what do you think about that? What do you think about the Lord Jesus Christ coming into this world, taking the form of a bondservant, taking the lowest place, being a servant, coming to serve and not to be served? I wonder if it changes your view on things. Let's look back at verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which also is in Christ Jesus. Let this attitude be in you, the attitude of Christ. May that be in you this evening and in me. It's a challenging question, isn't it? It's something that I think is a, a, well, it's a struggle, really, for all of us. I don't think I can honestly say that I am a good example of that. I hope and pray that over the time of my life that God will conform me to the image of his son and not to the image of of this world. And I hope and pray that that's the same for all of us, that we want to be conformed to his image, to be just like our saviour. Are you walking it out? Is it true of you? Is it true of me? Are we willing to take the lowest place, to esteem others better than ourselves, to help others, even if it means washing their feet? Are we willing to do the most menial task to help one of our brothers and sisters in Christ? Matthew 25, verse 40 says that by serving each other, we serve Christ. And that's true, isn't it? We serve each other because we, are, we should be examples of Christ. And if we're examples of Christ, then we are glorifying Christ. I wonder, actually, are you willing to go a step further than washing people's feet or doing the most menial of tasks? Are you willing to die for Christ? Are you willing to die for the sake of the gospel? And, you know, it's, it's quite easy for me to stand here and ask you that question, well, I'm asking that question to myself. And, you know, when we look back over, the, over our history in this country and we think of people who have done just that very thing, it's easy to say, isn't it? Well, yeah, I'm sure I would. But when we actually think about it, right now, if that happened, I hope and pray that God will give me grace to say, yes, I would be able to die for the sake of the gospel. Many of you have heard of a man called Hugh Latimer. He was burnt at the stake with another lad called Nicholas Ridley. And as they burnt at the stake together, he called out to his, his colleague, his friend, his brother in Christ, and he said, Play the man, Master Ridley. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. See, he wasn't dying in vain, was he? He was willing to die for the sake of the gospel. And it did light such a candle. It was part of the Reformation. And so much good has been done through the lives of these martyrs. And even people today still lose their lives for the sake of the gospel. 
So Jesus Christ, he came from exaltation to humility for sinners, for you and for me. Verse 9, it says, Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name. It says wherefore, or in the New King James, that will say therefore. So because of this, because of what's gone before, because of what the Lord Jesus Christ has done, God has exalted him to the highest place. We read in Peter's sermon that he has been exalted to the right hand of God, a place of authority. When we see Stephen martyred, he says he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And we read of, uh, in the Gospels, we hear the voice of God, don't we, saying, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. If you think of uh, a marriage ceremony, where does the groom stand? The groom is on the right, isn't he? The bride is on the left. The groom is at the place of authority. And, of course, marriage depicts the, the relationship between Christ and the church. Christ is at the place of authority. At all times now, he's been exalted to his rightful place. And he's been given a name above every other name, a name which indicates his position. And it's Lord. Lord of all, King of kings. In the Greek, the word is kurios, master, master of all. He's the master of the universe. And speaking of the universe, in verse... 10 and 11 it says this that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father the universe and everything in it should bow to God and glorify him and if we read in Psalm 148 actually that is what's happening in Psalm 148, in verse, well, I'll read a few verses of it. It says, Praise ye the Lord, praise ye the Lord from the heavens, praise him in the heights, praise ye him, all his angels, praise ye him, all his hosts. Then in verse 3, it says, Praise him, sun, moon, praise him, all ye stars of light. In verse 7, it says, Praise the Lord from the earth, ye, ye dragons and all deeps. And in verse 13, it says, let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is excellent. His glory is above the earth and the heaven. So everything in this world praises God. Everything in this world speaks of its creator. You may think, well, how? Well, it does. You know, even a blue whale swimming through the sea, making whatever noises it makes under, under there, it speaks of God. It shouts about God. And how wonderful his creator is. The birds singing. You know, it's really pretty to hear, isn't it? They're singing because God has made them sing. As God has told them to sing, they are singing of God. And the stars and the sun, the moon, they shine. It shouts to us there is a creator, doesn't it? It shouts to us that there is God. But you know, the funny thing is that everything well, almost everything is doing as it's instructing, as, it's instru as is instructed by God. We could say everything, but there's one thing that's not, and that's you and me, man. Man is not 
worshipping God as we should. But one day, that will change. Because it says that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. He will return. That may be soon. It may, may be in a little while. It says in Revelation 1, Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him. Even they who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. Everyone will see him, no matter where you are. There are so many people uh, who are called, I believe they're called preppers. You know, they've, they've got these places in deep caves where they've stored loads of food and stuff. Even them, they, when they're in their deepest, darkest cave, wherever they are, when Jesus comes, they will see him still. It doesn't matter whatever is hiding them. They will see Jesus. The Lord will return. So is this mind in you this evening? Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. So is that mind in you tonight, knowing that the Lord Jesus Christ may return at any moment? Are you ready? Are you ready to meet God? Am I ready to meet God? Well, all we need to do is pray to him and ask him. Ask him to fulfill his purpose in our lives. Ask him to make us more like him, to be examples of him, to glorify him while we are here on earth. In Romans 12, we, uh, we read that um, we are to be not conformed to the image of this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Let's pray to God and ask him to renew our minds that we may serve him as he served us. Let's pray. Dear Lord God, we thank you once again, Lord, for your word. And we pray, Lord, that you would speak to us day by day and that you would conform us to the image of your Son, that we may be examples of Christ and that we may look forward to that day of your return. Lord, we pray that we would be ready when you come. Lord, come quickly. We pray that we would not be wanting to stay here, but that we are wanting to be with you. So, Father, hear us now as we come and ask these things in the name of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, our last hymn is At the Name of Jesus. Every knee shall bow. 268. Every tongue confess him, King of glory now. Tis the Father's ple pleasure we should call him Lord, who from the beginning was the mighty word. We'll stand and sing 268. <laughs>